Our scripture reading this morning is found in Mark chapter 11. Please turn there with me in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own, our ushers have Bibles available. Raise your hand and they'll bring one that you can use throughout the service this morning. Mark chapter 11. When you found it, would you please stand? Please follow along with me as I read Mark 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and he will, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a coat tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the coat? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the coat to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, for all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
May God give us understanding in this portion of scripture that we read this morning. We'll be preaching through. Let's bow forward a prayer. After prayer, our choir will come with special music and then the preaching of God's word. We thank you, Father, for this day that you've given us. We thank you for a new month and a new week. And we thank you for the beautiful weather that we've enjoyed with this coming of May. We thank you for allowing us to gather here together today. We pray, Lord, that you would take away distractions, allow us to focus on your truth and on your word, and that your Holy Spirit will give us understanding and proper application, that you would challenge our thinking. Speak to our hearts, minister to us through your Holy Spirit, through your word today. Use a messenger to speak forth your truth. And we pray that you would make it plain to us. We pray for people that are part of this church. We think of many who are suffering through different kinds of ailments. We just pray that you would watch over and be with each. And we just pray for your work here that as you uh, speak your word, as we come together, that you would use our lives to speak the gospel. We live out the faith that we proclaim as a result that others would see Jesus in our lives and they would come to trust, to honor, to believe in him, to live for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. But please be seated. continue now in our series in Mark, and here we are at Mark chapter 11. Um, we haven't focused a lot on geography um, in our study, but you can see, um, if I could kind of visualize a map, the Sea of Galilee is a pear-shaped sea up in the northern portion uh, in the time of Jesus in, in Israel, and he's been operating in that sphere mainly, Capernaum and, and uh, uh, that area. And now he begins, he's began to travel down uh, and he veered over towards the Jordan River and the city of Jericho. And, uh, uh, and now he's headed over towards to Jerusalem. We notice there's three times when Jesus said to his disciples that the Son of Man is going to be uh, um, arrested. He's going to be uh, challenged. He's going to be uh, beaten. He's going to be killed, crucified, and he's going to rise again. He's shared that with them three times. And that kind of went over their head. They didn't quite understand or they're not quite getting that. But he's making his journey over to Jerusalem for that very purpose. And so now we see, um, and, and that's important because you look at the first verse of, of chapter 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they're, they're almost there. They're, they're getting there, um, but not quite there. He says uh, they drew near to Jerusalem here at this little village called Bethphage and Bethany. Now Bethany we recognize because it's mentioned 
several times in the gospel. Um, Bethany is the uh, uh, hometown of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It's also in Mark chapter 14, we see there that um, in verse 3, it says, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. So that's another notable interaction that he has in Bethany. So he's come through Bethany, and he's now at the Mount of Olives, it says in verse 1. And the Mount of Olives is right outside of Jerusalem. If you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 12, it tells us that the Mount of Olives was just a Sabbath day's journey away from Jerusalem, and that was about three-fifths of a mile, so uh, um, you know, a little more than half a mile, not very far, walking distance. Um, from the city proper of Jerusalem. So he's, he's right there. So when he gets to that point, then these events happen that we see in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 12. It's an event that we commonly uh, associate with, with, with Palm Sunday. When Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and uh, uh, we see this display. And let me just tell you what's happening here. The king has come. The king has come, and he's coming into the city of Jerusalem, and he's making a big deal about it. And he's doing that for several reasons. One is he is fulfilling scripture, and we'll see that as we go. But look first of all at his instructions to the disciples. He, he tells them, he sends two of his disciples, he says, go into the village and you will find a, a colt and I want you to untie this colt, this animal, I want you to bring it to me and if people ask you about it, just tell them I have need of it and they'll understand and they'll send it. And so that's exactly what happens. It happens just as he says, and so they bring him this cult. Now, there, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we see that there are actually two animals there. There's a cult and a donkey, um, and that, that's a part of what happens here. Uh, but that, those are just details. In verse Seven. It says, they brought the coat to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And so they are, are laying out a path for Jesus to come. This is very significant because this is what you did for a king entering into the city. And they're doing that for Jesus. And Jesus, in fact, have ins has instructed them to do this. He's instructed his disciples to go and find these animals. He's, he's riding on it, and he's making his entry into the city. Verse 9, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, they say. It means save or please save. They are recognizing Jesus as a king and he's coming into his kingdom, so to speak, into his key city. I want you to notice back with me in Mark chapter 1. Verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You see, he started his ministry saying, the kingdom is at hand. And he gives them instruction to do, to prepare for that kingdom. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is now showing that the king has come. 
the king has come. You can't miss that here. When they say, Hosanna, they're saying, save us. Please save us. And in fact, um, I'm not sure if they knew they were fulfilling Scripture or not, but God would set it up that way. So can we travel back to Scripture and just kind of take a look at, at, at what this speaks of? Turn with me to Psalm 118, verse 25. Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, if you put that in context in the psalm, you'll see what it's talking about. Verse 18, excuse me, verse 19 of Psalm 118, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I might enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the thorns of the altar. You can see them in preparation for an entry that's going to happen. The marvelous thing about this text is Jesus' response. It's not shown here in Mark, but if we take a look in Luke, what we see something uh, uh, very interesting that happened. So I'm going to just peek at that. Luke chapter 19, um, starting at verse 29. Luke chapter 19. start at verse 37. He was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Where have you heard that before? <laughs> Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You kind of heard that from the angels announcing the birth of Christ, didn't you? That, that's saying something significant is going on here. And then it says this, verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now that alone tells you something. <laughs> the Pharisees didn't like the implication of what was being said and what was being presented. Why did they not like that? They understood clearly the message that was being given. Here's the message. A king was coming into his kingdom. They didn't like that implication. And they said to Jesus, you need to straighten them out. You need to correct them. They're calling you king. They're saying you're coming into your kingdom. That can't be right. You better straighten them out. Well, Here's what Jesus says in verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, we've heard that scripture, but now let's put it in context. The rocks will cry out. Jesus says, look, it's true. The king is coming, and if y'all don't want to tell the truth, even the rocks will tell it. Even the inanimate objects that God has made will suddenly have a voice and vocalize the truth that the king has indeed come. This, of course, is a fulfillment of Scripture. But it's a fulfillment 
of what Jesus was saying back in Mark chapter 1. Repent. The kingdom is at hand. And now he's saying that kingdom has a king, and here he is. Now the whole chapter of Mark 11 helps us to see the response of the people and what happens after that. Let's move back to Mark 11. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem. Okay, so the king has come, right? What does he do? He enters in Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. What else happens? And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, doesn't that kind of make you think, well, what, wait, hey, wait, wait a minute. You know, if you were watching this on a movie, you would say, well, wait. That's kind of confusing. The king come. He's come. And he left. He just kind of came. And he left. There was a big fanfare at first, but he got there, and he left. You read through this chapter, you begin to put a picture together. Let me help you. Verse 11, I mean, excuse me, Mark 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Beth Bethage, at Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, all right, the king is approaching, right? Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. When he looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out. Verse 1, he's coming in. Verse 11, he's going out. Verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, see this incidence with the fig tree but let me skip ahead verse 15 and after the fig tree incident they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple skip down to verse 19 and when evening came they went out of the city verse 20 and they passed by in the morning so they're coming back you see the fig tree again Verse 27, and they came again to Jerusalem. And he walks into the temple. So what's happening with Jesus here? What is the message that's being spoken, that's being uh, given to us visually and spoken? The king has come. But after the king comes, he leaves. Why? Why does he leave? Well, the lesson of the fig tree, excuse me, the, the, um, the interaction with the fig tree, verses 12 through 14. So let's take a look at that. We call it the curse of the fig tree. On the following day, verse 12 says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. It was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now you would say, hey, that, that's an odd incident. Jesus comes He's hungry, he sees a fig tree, doesn't have any figs on it, and he curses the fig tree. You know what does it mean to curse? He, he condemns it. He speaks and says, hey, you will not feed another person. No one will ever eat from you again. And it says the disciples heard it. In other words, there was something significant. This wasn't just a petty thing. It meant something. Now let's go back, let's follow along in verse 20. At this point, he's gone into the temple. He's cleansed the temple, and he's coming. He went out of the city, and the next day he comes back into the city again, and he passes by the fig tree. It says in verse 20, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. This is the very next day. It's withered. 
Verse 21, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And then Jesus goes on to teach something from there. What does this fig tree represent? And why does Jesus cause it to wither and never bear fruit again? Jesus came to this fig tree and he was hungry, it says. He expected to find fruit. And it tells us something interesting that's very important. He says, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he saw it in bloom, and he expected to find fruit. We're told that when a fig tree blooms is a time when fruit is normally shown and produced. And so he expected to find it, but there was none when he expected to find fruit. So he went to it, he saw the leaves, he thought that there should be, normally there would be fruit, or at least the beginning of fruit there, and he found none. Nothing but leaves. It's not a stretch for us to, to say what does the fig tree represent because the Old Testament gives us indication that the fig tree represents Israel. The Old Testament uses various Ill, uh, pictures to picture Israel. One was the vine, uh, uh, the, the grapes in the, on a vine, uh, the vineyard was a, a common picture of Israel. The fig tree was also a common picture in Israel. Let, let's just take a look at a few of them. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. You're going to have to turn with me, so get those fingers moving. We're just going to look at uh, three, other, uh, three scriptures total. So Jeremiah 8, 13. It says, When I would gather them declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. The them refers to Israel, to his people. He pictures them as vines or grapes on a vine or figs on a fig tree. In Hosea chapter 9, turn there with me, Hosea, one of the books that we have gone through in a message, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Hosea 9 verse 10. The prophets often use pictures and illustrations to point out things, and we can see here. Hosea 9, are you with me there? It says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. So again, uses that picture of a fig tree, well as a vine or grapes, to picture Israel. In that same chapter, verse 16, he says, Ephraim, another word for Israel, is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. <laughs> God's judgment on Israel because of their sin, the sin of unbelief, the sin of disobedience. In the next book over from Hosea is Joel. If you turn to Joel chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, we see the picture again. Take you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine for it, it, for it is cut off from your mouth for a nation has come up against my land powerful and beyond number its teeth are like its teeth are lion's teeth and it has the fangs of a lioness it has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree 
all this prophesying of judgment to come on Israel. And it's pictured there as a vine and a fig tree. So go back to our passage in Mark chapter 11. Jesus comes across a fig tree. He expects to find fruit, and he finds none, nothing but leaves. The image here is the king has come to his kingdom. The king has come, and the inhabitants are unprepared and not ready to accept the king. And the king that would expect to find fruit there, he finds nothing. Worse, though, is that there's an appearance of fruit, but no fruit. The leaves show an appearance and give you an expectation that there should be fruit, but there's no fruit at all. Jesus expected fruit. He expected fruit from his people, and he saw none at all. The king has come, and the inhabitants are not ready. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's leaves. There's appearance of what should be coming. But there's no substance there. That's what Jesus found in his time. As he literally is coming into Jerusalem and saying, hey, I am the king. Not only does he not find fruit when he expects to find fruit, what he finds is that which repels him, that which pushes him away, that which rejects him. Let's get into that in, in, in just a moment. Jesus is asserting himself as the king as he comes. You see in, when you see in verse 11, he comes, he, he, he checks things out. <laughs> but he leaves. The next day he comes in verse 12 and he checks the fig tree out and there's nothing and he leaves. Before he leaves that day though, he goes into the temple. Look at verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, and he was teaching them. That's amazing to me. Jesus is cleansing the, te the, the temple, and he's setting things straight, but it's not just a, a negative reaction. It also says he is teaching them. So he, 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 he genuinely cared. He didn't just go out, out there and, 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 and clear them out, but he was trying to teach them things through this that was right. Verse 7, he was 17, he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So he comes into the temple and what does he find there? A place that should be welcoming to all, the city and the house. Not only is it not welcoming to, to those who it should be welcoming, it's not welcoming to the king himself. He says, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations in verse 17. Now, where does, he, where does that come from? If we take a look at Isaiah chapter 56... So again, I want you to turn back there. Isaiah 56, verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch, 
who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses the things that please me and holds fast my covenant, I will give in my house. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Verse 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Notice, first thing we notice is that Jesus is referring back to this scripture, and he's showing that Israel has utterly rejected God's purpose for it. God's purpose for Israel was to reach the nations. And he says, I'm making this temple, I'm making my house a place where foreigners who have been disconnected from God's people and thus disconnected from me can come and be connected to me. And he said, Israel, you have totally gone away from my purpose that I've had. I'm amazed at this for, 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 for several reasons. One is it shows off the broad plan of God that he's had, and it shows the unity of that plan throughout the Old Testament, throughout the whole Word of God. And so when we get into the Scriptures in the New Testament, we, 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 people today want to start talking about grace and, and, and how God's reaching out to, to all of mankind, but we need to understand that that's been his plan all along. Israel had failed to understand and to live under that plan. And so when Jesus comes as a king to his kingdom, he walks into the temple and he sees the, the, the nonsense that's going on. He, clear, he clears that out, but then he teaches what should have been going on. What should have been going on is they should have been living out this faith and this walk and they should have been welcoming the nations there to join and to, to be connected to God. God has always had a plan to reach the nations, plural, to reach people. And his covenant people who should have been there, see, see they are the leaves without the figs. They are in appearance only and no fruit. And Jesus says, I've rejected you. The curse shows that. I've rejected you because you've totally missed my loving and gracious purpose. You thought yourself something and you've totally lost sight of what my purpose was for you. Yes, to save you and to use you as an instrument to draw in others. Jesus is the king, come to his kingdom that's very disappointed in what he sees. But he sets things in order and he is still gracious in what he does. He says, my house should be a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. You've commercialized and you have taken advantage for your profit, the position that God has placed you in, and you have not done as I've pleased and as I've desired. Going back now to Mark chapter 11. So the lesson now comes from the withered fig tree. When Peter reminds Jesus, kind of points to the fig tree and say, look, you know, Peter's amazed. But Jesus isn't, of course. Peter said, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. <laughs> yeah, Peter. Jesus says, have faith in God. <laughs> Truly I say to you, 
Whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and to be yours. I think the, the emphasis there, Jesus is simply teaching about faith. There's a curse to those who are leaves only, who are just for appearance sake but not the real faith. And then he says, here's the blessing. God responds to those who do believe. God is open and responding to them who trust in him, who believe. Doesn't have to just be the Jews. He started there, but he reaches out to all the nations. And he says, if you would just believe, you'll see God's work. You will see God's blessing. And in this case, it was a curse, but it's a blessing as well because it's in response, or God is responding to the faithful, to those who have faith and full of faith. He also makes the connection, we've been making this in Wednesday night in our prayer time. He's making the connection between faith and forgiveness. He makes that clear connection when he says this, whenever you, verse 25, whenever you uh, stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in, who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The connection between faith or between prayer and forgiveness is that, look, we cannot faith, we cannot pray to God or we cannot believe in God without living it out in our own lives and practicing that forgiveness in our own lives. He says that as you do that, you will see God's work. You will see his powerful work in your own life. So he says, hey, if you want to pray and you want to see God work, you need to live it out in your own life. Practice it. He says, forgive. Forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven will forgive you. Then the last part of this chapter, we see Jesus' authority as a king is challenged by the inhabitants, by those who possess <laughs> so to speak, Jerusalem. We see a, a power struggle here. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and, and he does these things. And what are the things that he does? Well, we see him cleansing the temple and, and setting the, the purpose for God, the original purpose for God's place, for his house to be a, a place of prayer and a place where uh, uh, those who are disconnected can come and be connected to him. So verse 27, they, and then again, excuse me, and they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. They said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? One of the things I noticed about, it just a, 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 seems a small thing about Jesus and Jerusalem. It says, it seems like he never never spends a night in Jerusalem. He, he comes in and he goes out. He comes in and he goes out. And that in itself is his annou announcement that, hey, this place is corrupt. It's, it's, it's not right. There is an uh, outward appearance of worship and right with God, but it's not right. One of the reasons why it's not right is it's controlled by the the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the, the, the scribes and the elders, the, the chief priests, and we see them now coming to Jesus and they ask him a question. Who gave you permission to do all this stuff that you're doing? Who said you can come up in our city, come up in our temple and, and change this stuff and set it straight? And Jesus says, I'll be glad to answer that if you would in turn answer 
my question. And he gives them a question. He says this. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Very simple, direct question. Tell me, John, do you respect him or not? Was he real or not? Was he from heaven or did he make it up? Did he get his authority from heaven or did he just assume something on his own? And it tells us that they pondered. Verse 31, they discussed it with one another. Now, you might think, how do we know what they discussed? I can tell you how we know. <laughs> we can know because there was a Joseph of Arimathea. There was a Nicodemus. These men were part of this council. They were part of this inner circle. But these were men that eventually, as they saw the things that were happening, that God opened their eyes. And they began to see the hypocrisy of the people around them, and they began to see the real power in who Jesus really was. I believe it's those men who, who turned, who, 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 who gave insight as to what was happening in these inner circles. So it says in verse 31, as they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? <laughs> so it's clear they didn't believe John. But they couldn't give a real sound answer as to why. They just didn't like him. Verse 32, but shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people. For all the people held that John really was a prophet. Notice, this is, this is not the kind of fear that Jesus ever had, where he was afraid of the people, where, the, where he was afraid to speak what is true and what is right. They are holding to their own thing. They're holding on to their power is what they're doing. They're afraid to say what they really believe because they feel the people will turn against them. These are the people who recognize Jesus for who he is, and they, they proclaim that truth. Even though they couldn't hold on to that, you know, we, we notice that they laid down their palm branches and, and acknowledge. They're simply acknowledging what is true. Now, later on, when Jesus, just a few days later, he was to be put on the cross, and nobody else would be around him then, but they still acknowledge what is true about Jesus simply because it, it is true. These religious leaders would not acknowledge the truth. So they come back and they answer Jesus. Verse 33, they answer Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's saying, you want to play these games? I don't have to ask you for permission, and I don't have to explain to you the authority that I have, because I know where it's coming from. I know who I am. The king has come, but the circumstances that he finds are not very pleasant. The nation that he's come to, you know, John chapter 1, verse 11, it says he came to his own but his own received him not. But then in that next verse, but to many, to, to, to those who received him, to them, he gave the authority to become the children of God, to be connected with God. I'm so thankful for the gospel. I'm so thankful for what God is doing. He's come and he's been rejected but he graciously continues to teach. And he graciously continues to speak to those and, and to let them know that their faith in him will save them. God will respond to that. That they will, <laughs> they will be connected with God. 
as a result of that. Jesus is on his way to his crucifixion. He has announced that the kingdom is at hand, but the people aren't ready for that. That's the condition that we find today in Milwaukee. That's the condition that we find today in the United States. That's the condition that we find today all over the world. And yet what we find in Milwaukee, that God has continued to give his gospel out, and there are some that he will reach. And there are some that will come and hear and recognize the gospel. Jesus is saying to those, have faith in God. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass and will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, it will be yours. He's saying trust God, believe in God, and embrace what God has promised. You'll see the power of God in your life. That power is displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, though overall Jesus is rejected, by so many, the gospel goes out because there are some that he's reached, there are some that are among the many that he's calling to himself. It's still God's purpose that his house be a house of prayer for all the nations, a house where people can come and trust in God regardless of where they have come from. He's drawing them to himself. God is speaking to your heart today. The message goes out to you. Are you going to receive the king or are you rejecting him? Father, we pray that you would speak through your word today. You would break through the hardened hearts. You open the eyes that they might see Jesus for who he is. As your message is preached, Lord, I pray that we would give our attention, that we would give our obedience to, 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 to you by trusting in Christ as our Lord and Savior. And we thank you for your purpose, your loving purpose and your grace to reach out to mankind on this world and in, of every family, of every nation, of every kindred, your gospel is out and it's reaching some in those groups. And I thank you for that. I thank you that you've touched our hearts and changed us so that we can see who Jesus is. To recognize him as king. So Lord, you condemn those who are just just have an outward appearance and you draw those your message is going out to who would trust in you. So we pray and we thank you for that. Now as we prepare for communion, Lord, we pray that you would purify our hearts. You cause us to see Jesus and to recognize it's his blood that was shed for our sins, his body that was given for our salvation. And may that truth rest in us and so that we would live, that we would desire to live faithfully for you. We desire to live connected in this church, in, the, in, in, in this body, so that we can obey you and accomplish all that you have for us to do. Bless us and open our eyes as we interact in communion together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask my leadership team if they will come forward as we prepare for communion this, today. Communion is an important time.
We usually do that on the first Sunday in the month. And we remember what Christ has done for us. If you haven't accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you should not. You should not take communion today. If you're you are a child of God, if you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're walking in obedience, we encourage you to examine yourself and so take communion, remembering Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. So let's bow in a word of prayer. Let's prepare our hearts for communion today. You search your heart. If there's something that you need to ask forgiveness for, do that now, would you? Get that right, right now with God. If your heart is not open to a brother or sister, you have not forgiven them, not right with them, I encourage you to get that right. Your fellowship with God is affected by that. Get that right now. So as we pause for prayer, we give you that opportunity to examine your heart, to think through, to pray through. It shouldn't be something that you just did today. You should have done that as you on your way to church, even as you're preparing in your mind during the week to come to fellowship with God's people. So I pray you take that serious. And now we're going to have a moment of silence where we can pray. I'm going to ask Brian if he would Give us that moment of silence and then pray for us as we prepare ourselves for communion right now. So let's pray. The Word of God gives us instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 of how we ought to regard this time. We ought to take it seriously. And we're not to do it in an unworthy manner. And then we are to take of the bread and take of the cup. The bread represents Jesus' body. He took on a human body so he could be the sacrifice or the payment for our sin. And so we want to remember if, if he would pray for Christ and the element that represents his body this wafer or this bread. I would ask Lawrence if he would pray for us and thank God for the juice that represents Jesus' blood that pays for our sin. So let's bow in a time of prayer. I'll direct you to come. Here's what we ask of you. That you will come from your seats along the outer aisles and come and enter back through the center aisle. If you're not going to take communion, we ask that you would continue in that procession so that people won't have to walk over you to get back to their seat. But if you're not going to take communion, then just walk and don't take a tray.
feel if you would pull that back? His juice represents Jesus' blood. His blood was a required payment for our sin. Reading this week in Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. That cup represented all that he had to go through in life. And he says, if it's possible that I don't have to go through this, Lord, that would be fine by me. But then he says, nevertheless, your will be done. In a human sense, we don't like hardships. We don't like things that are uncomfortable. Things that are suffering, that cause suffering and bring pain. And Jesus would react to those things that same way in his human sense. But as a son, he wanted to obey his father. As a divine savior, he says, I'm willing to go through all that is necessary to bring salvation to my people. And that he did. And so his blood was absolutely necessary. The father would not say, okay, that's all right. You don't have to go through this. He said, no, I require this to be paid for sin. We remember how, how much a sacrifice was needed. I think it'll do a couple things. One is that we won't take sin lightly. time. 